Brian, welcome to the Bitcoin Source. Thank you for taking time out to have this Bitcoin conversation. Can we get things started by you introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me today. Uh, yeah, my name is Brian Dement. I have been in the Bitcoin space since 2013, uh, originally just as an investor. Over the years, I uh, became professionally involved in the industry. I worked uh, for three years. I was the chief marketing officer for Athenium blockchain. So dabbled in the altcoin space, which is a pretty common thing for, for, for it's that we call that the horseshoe journey. People start in Bitcoin, they go to altcoins and they tend to, to, to revert back to, to Bitcoin. Um, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin, I would say like Bitcoin's primary for me. I don't, I don't, um, I don't completely hate on the altcoins, but I think that the Bitcoin's the only uh, form of sound money in the, in the cryptocurrency space. And, and I, you know, I, I love to, to, uh, welcome in with open arms altcoiners, but, uh, but I'm definitely in the, in the, the Bitcoin, uh, evangelism camp. That's why I wrote the book, Bitcoin evangelism, because I think it's really important for people to understand. And so, um, I'm on a book tour right now. I, I released the book a couple months ago, but I've been doing a book tour promoting it. And so, um, the, the, the goal of Bitcoin evangelism is not just to win over no coiners or new people, but also to, um, to welcome in, uh, people in the larger crypto space into, uh, educating them on what Bitcoin is. Um, I, I have a ton of friends that, um, the first thing they ever got into was was Dogecoin or some project that was number 450 on coin market cap, um, because a friend gave them a hot tip and, uh, that was their, their first foray into the, into the crypto universe. And so, um, I just saw so many friends be, be like getting into the space but not knowing why they were in it. And so I said, you know what? I got to put this information down into a resource that's, that's easy for people to understand. And so the way I explain it with my book is that I'm, I'm one caveman explaining something complicated to another caveman. Like that's, that's the voice with which it's written. Um, and so it's like, it's almost like if, uh, if the Bitcoin standard and Bitcoin for dummies had a baby, that, that's what the book would be. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I'm doing here today, man. You've been gracious enough to to invite me on and, and talk Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's my favorite way to start off a weekend. So <laughs> let's uh, let's get after it, dude. Um, yes, sir. I think a lot of people that watch this show, they're very maximalist. They're very Bitcoin only, which is what I want. That's the audience I'm kind of catering to. But I love the transparency of you being honest and letting people know, like, you didn't really start off with Bitcoin. You kind of got into the rabbit hole of altcoins and other cryptocurrencies. But eventually you found your way to, you know, sound money and true money. And, you know, I think that that part of the journey is what makes it so beautiful. Right. And, you know, me being a writer, I've authored several books as well. This these type of interviews with authors are always very heartfelt for me. And I love to pick their brains because I think that writing books or even just elucidating your story to you know possibly millions of people it takes courage it takes guts and it takes a certain skill set that a lot of people think they have but they don't understand the actual struggle it takes to write a book especially for bitcoiners who are super fickle um very picky and they can be sometimes judgmental so thank you brian for really giving people um that insight into who you are as a bitcoiner and that transparency that's right. It's it's uh, I think it's it's helpful. You know, I've, I've been in business also for a long time. I've been a uh, an entrepreneur for 14 years. And uh, whenever people ask me, like, what's the the number one thing you would tell new entrepreneurs? And I think it, it translates into so other many areas of life. Um, but just being transparent, I always say tipping your cards to other people 
is is one of the best things you can do to business. I think when I got into business, I thought that I had to I had to keep everything secretive and I had to kind of make my moves behind the scenes. Um, and maybe there's a time and a place for that. But I found that in business negotiations and in just kind of dealing with my employees, whatever it happens to be, the best thing I can do is kind of expose my strengths and my weaknesses to other people and tell them what I'm looking for and what I want, ask them what they want. And, uh, and usually there's, you know, that's, that tends to be the most fruitful way to, to go about doing business. So, um, you might not always tell people exactly what they want to hear. Um, but if they understand you're coming from a genuine place, like they're, you know, willing to, to dialogue and, and work with you a little bit. And I found that some of the best business deals I've gotten, we're, we're, we're through that. Some of the best conversations I've had with people were through that. Um, I think that those were some of the conversations that helped shape me in terms of the Bitcoin altcoin type of dialogue. Then uh, when I was working on an altcoin project, people that in the Bitcoin space that were very like, okay, hey, man, I, I see where you're coming. I see what you guys are trying to do with this decentralized education type of thing. That's what the, the blockchain I was working on. And uh, but they're like, you you need to come back to sound money principles with Bitcoin. Like that's, that's where it's at. And that's, what's so important about this. And, um, and, and, and it was, they were, they were gentle conversations, you know? And, and I, I think that I had a conversation when I was on uh, John Ballas's show, um, Bitcoin rapid fire a few weeks ago. And, uh, my, my point on the, the Bitcoin evangelism thing was, you know what? Hey, look at, look at Christian evangelism. Like in the history of Christianity, there was the crusades where, where Christianity tried to spread with the sword and then they weren't very successful at that time. But then there was Christianity that spread around the world and it was through like a gentle evangelism to people, right? It was, you know, you can, you can beat people over the head with the Bible or you can kind of welcome them in and talk about the, you know, the nice and pleasant things. And so, um, you know, his point was, Hey, look at all the people that became Christians because of the hellfire and brimstone speeches like that, that stuff did work. And so he was a big proponent of very firm, Bitcoin maximalism. Like, no, I'm going to tell an altcoiner that they're dumb. And by me telling them that they're dumb, like they're going to wake up. And and he's right. Like there's people that, that, that do respond that way. But for me, it's like, it, I like to have, for me, it was helpful to have somebody gently have that conversation with me. Like, you know what, uh, you know, helping people recognizing that, that even if you have good motives in the altcoin space, that there's so much room for scam and there's so much room for just people taking advantage that, that leading people into that space can be, can be dangerous. Even if you might think that there's some good ideas out there and stuff, like you have to temper those types of things, especially when we're talking about putting people's finances at risk and things like that. Where, yeah, where, where are you? Where are you on that scale? Uh, pure, pure, pure blood maximalist. You like to go firm with it. Where? What about you? You know, I give myself room. Like I wouldn't consider myself a maximalist. I would probably consider myself like a freedom maximalist, if that makes any sense. Cause I think that uh, Bitcoin is freedom money. So, you know, it's all different for different people, but you know, I've kind of come under the school and the tutelage of people like Lamar Wilson, black mm -hmm. Bitcoin billionaire. So, you know, he preaches that very heavy where, um, you know, to be a sound investor, you got to kind of look at every angle. But just from looking at other cryptocurrencies and looking at Bitcoin, just from my fundamental looking at first principles, looking at what this asset actually is, it just makes more sense to me to be Bitcoin only than to really fall into the other altcoins. And like like you were saying, there's a lot of like manipulation there. There's pre-mining. The pre-mining is the most dangerous thing to me because that means that someone has a hoard of that token before it goes out to the public. That's sketchy off the rip. <laughs> and then- with Bitcoin, what I always tell people is like, the main thing you need to think about is finite scarcity and just the fact that 
every four years, you know it's going to go up in value. No matter what happens during the bear market, those four-year intervals, it's going to go up, it's going to go down. But you know once that halving hits, it's going to increase in price because it becomes more scarce. You can't predict that with other altcoins. Yeah. There's no other altcoin that's doing halving on an on a algorithm-based schedule. You know, people will f eventually come to come to the truth. It takes time. You know what I mean? It's just like anything else in life. Like people are going to go their own way, but eventually they're going to realize, and hopefully it's not too late for them when the, it's a million a coin or something, that they can really realize that Bitcoin is really about to change the world. And having conversations like this with people such as yourself is what people are going to gravitate to in the future to really get a sense of, um, you know, unity and saying like, hey, these people were right all along. Mm. And maybe it's time we listen to them and read these books that they're putting out because they know the truth earlier than some other people. And that's what's beneficial. Yeah. No, 100%, man. And I think that's, you'll hear people in the altcoin space talk about, you know, you even have the XRPs of the world or the Dogecoins that's, that, that they'll say, well, we have a finite supply. Like I think, I believe XRP has a, a certain like amount of coins that's in circulation. I think they're all I don't know if they're all in circulation. I think they, they're pretty much all in circulation. But what people don't get is just because that, that's where decentralization comes in. So Bitcoin has a fixed, a fixed supply programmed into its code, but the consensus is so distributed that code can change. Like if, if, if you have a single ledger block or a single node blockchain, it doesn't matter if the code says that there's 1 million coins your one node can change it. The centralization can change the consensus. And so these, these highly centralized ledgers might have a finite supply, but you, it's not reliable because that consensus can change very, very easily. And so, um, you know, that's part of the, that, that dialogue in the altcoin space is that there's, there's, there's like, um, whispers of Bitcoin. Like there's, there's like echoes of like the principles of Bitcoin. And it's like, great. I, I, I get that that's, you know, programmed into the code, but is it practical? Is that the way that it's going to play out? And there's, there's not really that guarantee with Bitcoin. You have incentives aligned so well and it's so distributed that it is very, very reliable. It's, it's, that's, you know, we use this word trustless for a bunch of different reasons in, in Bitcoin, but it is, it's like you would have in order for Bitcoin to, to have more than 21 million coins than, than to have that fixed supply, you would have to have miners and all sorts of people, you know, node validators, things like that, that, that are going against their own best interest. You'd have to have like millions of people all over the world going against their own self-interest, which makes absolutely no sense. So it's a very, very safe system where you don't necessarily have that with other blockchains, um, even if they have a quote unquote, you know, fixed supply. So you know, it's anyway. fine because I think that this podcast is really about letting the people, like it's called the Bitcoin source. So I really want to get the knowledge where you source your Bitcoin knowledge from. And one of the questions that I always ask people on this podcast when I first start out is, you know, where, what, what changed your perception? What changed your view of Bitcoin? Where did you source your knowledge, whether it be from books, courses, or even people in the ecosystem that kind of inspires you to go all in on this asset. So could you kind of give the audience that the answer to that question if possible? Yeah. So the light bulb moment, the orange pill moment for me, because I'd heard about Bitcoin a little bit um, back in like 2012. I think I I forget what, what exactly the, the first time I heard of it, but I remember one of the first times I heard of Bitcoin that I disregarded it was um, on, there was a college game day. Saturday football. I never watched college football, but I was watching college football and right behind the, before the game, they have all the announcers. And then in the background, they have all the students in the background. And there was a kid that had a sign with a QR code on it that said, Hey mom, send Bitcoin. <laughs> and uh, the, the Bitcoin forums like blew up because this was like, this is big news. Everybody was saying, Oh, Bitcoin's on ESPN. It was funny. It was like Bitcoin wasn't even being featured on ESPN. It was just in the background. But I remember thinking, Oh, that's, that's, you know, 
this internet nerd money. And so I disregarded it for probably a year. But the time when I heard about it, when it really set the light bulb off for me was uh, um, Andreas Antonopoulos was on the Joe Rogan experience. Um, he was on it a few times. But one of the things that he said in that interview was he talked in digital scarcity. That's what, every, what, what wins everybody over. But the way he said it was, he said that until Bitcoin was invented, so until, until 2009, in the history of computer science, we never had a way to cap digital things. So if you type a word into a document, you can just highlight, copy, paste, and replicate that infinitely. Um, and now this has really played out in the music industry. Like what happened when music went from records and CDs and cassettes to digital files? The music industry changed because you had LimeWire and you had Napster and all these companies. Like all of a sudden digital content, it was that had monetary value or excuse me, physical CDs that had monetary value, once they went digital, it just extracted all the value out of it because you could share it for free. And so things going digital was was how everything was moving. Every sector was going digital, but you couldn't have digital money unless you could cap it. And that's what was so revolutionary about Bitcoin. And that's this is what he was saying was that it's a way to have things that are digital that are also capped. And, and when you hear that a few times, like sometimes it just goes over your head or sometimes you don't realize how important it was but with the way he framed it it was just so clean it was so precise and i'm like yeah that makes sense like this is the answer to digital money like this is it and so i just you you read in history about these guys that stumbled across whether it's by accident or something that they did they stumble across something revolutionary and then they just go all in on it and they say that you know whether it's like you know, Rockefeller with kerosene and oil or, you know, Ford, Henry Ford with the automobile or Thomas Edison or Edison and, you know, Nikola Tesla with electricity and things. You see these guys that are just like, I stumbled across this thing that's paradigm shifting. It's changing society. And so I'm going to go all in on it. And to me, that was the, you know, Bitcoin is scarce. And it's the first time think digital things were scarce. That was the moment I'm like, yeah, I'm following this and I'm going down this rabbit hole. A hundred percent, you know, and that story was so awesome, man. And it's like every Bitcoiner's journey is completely different, but the end result is always the same. Oh my goodness, this is it. And I don't feel like I have enough, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, and it's right. like, yep. And it's like, Brian, you know, I really wanted to really dig into your book too, because I don't want people to miss this. Like I've, I've read your book, obviously, and you had some really powerful quotes throughout the book, but one quote in particular that really struck my attention was, um, talking about the guy in the plane with the parachute. And I don't know exactly how the quote went. It was like the guy with the parachute doesn't want the plane to crash, but he's prepared if it does. And I think about that in terms of Bitcoin, right? So do you believe Bitcoin will provide that parachute for people that are worried about the market crashing? Yeah, I think. And not only do I just assume that it's based on historical precedent. Um, I'm sure your audience, the Bitcoin community is very familiar with Weimar Germany. So without like bringing up the whole Weimar Republic hyperinflation and, and going through every detail of that, but just to touch on it for a second. So in Weimar Germany from the end of World War One until four years later, that was their, their hyperinflationary cycle um, because they had war reparations and everything like that. They had this insurmountable amount of debt. They had like, it was something like the equivalent of, it was 60 billion German marks at the time, which was pretty equivalent to like what we have right now, like $30 trillion debt. So it was, a, it was this unpayable debt. It, compared to their GDP, they were never gonna pay it back. So they, they started printing money. They printed their, their currency into hyperinflation. And the, by the end of that four-year cycle, what most people don't understand is that their smallest 
bill, their smallest mark of currency was it went from a one mark bill to a one trillion mark bill. And so it actually made their national debt. They, they made their, their fixed rate debt so irrelevant. It became the equivalent of about six cents. Because if you think about 60 billion marks versus a one trillion mark note, so their smallest bill could pay off their entire debt. Um, and it was this, this cataclysmic problem. Well, after they paid off that debt, because that's why governments do that, right? And that's why we're, it's going to happen in the US. We're seeing it happen all around the world. And so this parachute, it exists out there. And why do I think that? Because how did Germany, after they paid off, after they did that dirty business, they did that dirty fiat thing where you, where you print your money into oblivion so that you can pay off your debt. How do you repair your economy? Because that's the problem. Like, no, the economists never seem to think about that part of it. It's like, okay, we paid off the debt. We got to do big spending. Now what do we do? Well, what Germany did, and this has happened several other times in history, is that they, they had a sister currency. So they had the hyperinflating German mark, and then they had a new currency called the Renten mark. Uh, the, the German mark was, was hyperinflating. Every day it was losing 50% of its value. The, the Renten mark the, the German government said that they only, I forget what the exact number was, but we're only going to print something like a hundred million of these marks. We're not going to print any more of them. So you can use the Renton mark or you can use the, the mark. This one's hyperinflating. This one's only, there's only a hundred million of them. Use whichever one you want. Well, it's Gresham's law. Like people will be attracted to the one that is not inflating away every day. So what's the answer to hyperinflating currencies? Because governments, you know, governments will hyperinflate their currency to pay off their debt. The parachute is that fixed supply currency. Well, you're still trusting that government to do, they, they just screwed up this currency. So you're trusting this government to do that with this one. Well, in Germany's, Germany's case, they did that for about three or four years. They didn't print anymore. So it, it kind of got their economy back rolling. Um, but this is the first time in history with Bitcoin, we have a non-government currency so that as those currencies fail, as those hyperinflating currencies fail, we don't have to depend on another fiat currency that the gov government promises is going to be scarce. We already have one that's programmatically scarce. So history has shown us that this is the answer, that parachute exists, and the, the catastrophe is also inevitable. I, I don't want everybody to think, I like to be hopeful and optimistic in this. The cool thing is that the solution already exists. Every other time in history, the government's never had the solution to the problem until the problem came up. Then they would like figure out a solution. Bitcoin already exists. The parachute already exists before the, the plane has even gone down. So we get to rest much more easily than any other you know community in history that's had to deal with this. It's going to happen on a bigger scale because this is going to be the first time it's going to ever have happened globally. But again, the solution already exists with Bitcoin. So cool. So reassuring. Um, and I think that that's why you and I are out here trying to tell every single person we can, because I want so everybody to have that parachute on ready to go. And then we don't see this major like catastrophe on the scale, uh, that it could exist without that solution. Most definitely. And that kind of segues to my next question. And I'm glad you brought this up during your conversation. You know, we're seeing so many boom and bust cycles in the economy. It's just a part of the fiat debt based system. You know, when people really study Austrian economics or just regular economics on a, on a smaller scale, they'll realize that um, these boom and bust cycles are a natural progression of massive uh, overprinting, inflation, the whole gamut. And my question to you is, Brian, is in... Um, Bitcoin evangelism, you kind of explain a very complex topic, which is Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's very 
technically advanced. You're talking about algorithms, hash rates, terawatts, the whole nine. And a lot of people that aren't, you know, super technical, they may cast dispersions on what Bitcoin is, or it's just for the, you know, privileged techie millennials or the people that got in early. And, you know, why is decentralization so important for society? Because you kind of really harp on that a lot in your book. So I wanted to ask you this question, which is, once again, why is decentralization so important for our society? Um, you know, I obviously thought about that a lot when I was writing the book, and I've been thinking about that a lot this week, too. Um, <laughs> it's it's funny, this 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 is it's really important. That's the important question right there. And uh, I was flying recently and I was thinking, okay, there's probably like a hundred people on this plane. There's two people piloting this plane. There's a high degree of centralization in this situation right here. Like, like out of 102 people, only two people are in charge, a lot of centralization, but why, why does this work? Like, why am I not afraid? Like, I'm, I'm not nervous. I know people get nervous when they fly, but I don't think it's because they distrust the pilots. I think it's for other reasons. Like, why does everybody on this plane trust the pilots with our lives or maybe our kids' lives or whoever's on board? It's because our incentives are aligned. I trust that the pilot wants to get home safely to see his family, just like I want to get to my destination or I want to get back home. So you can have centralization when incentives are aligned, that actually makes sense. But as soon as incentives are misaligned, you need decentralization because decentralization places a check and balance on other people's motives. And so when we, when we scatter out our opinion, we get a better average. And so we get people that are, you know, one person's crazy, one person's really sane. The average is we're not going with the crazy person's, uh, you know, th their ideas and we're not following their path. You get checks and balances on power. So centralization isn't bad when incentives are aligned, but as soon as incentives are disaligned, you have to have to, uh, decentralization to be a check on misaligned incentives. And then once you start to really realize what's going on and like the incentive of what Bitcoin is trying to do, you know, and you read that white paper, you're like, oh, I see like corrupt money is always going to stay corrupt if nothing changes. Right. And mm -hmm. Michael Saylor talks about this, where he said, um, if you try to just combat the government and get rid of all the U.S. currency, you won't <laughs> win. Right. They'll outman us, outfinance us. Mm -hmm. But if you pull your wealth outside of the corrupt economy and put it into something else, it's a better way to win. And that's the way I look at Bitcoin. And I'm like, yeah. oh, this just makes so much sense. And I just think that, um, you know, people like yourself that write books about Bitcoin, that's the most important key. And I harp on this a lot because, you know, we live in a three second world now where the attention span is so condensed and people are so distracted that to get someone to actually read a good book and to actually intake that information. As a writer, I understand your struggle, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but there's those moments where you get books like your book that are super simple, but they're informative. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited to interview you because I'm like, okay, I want this guy to really tell me, you know, like, what is your favorite chapter in this book? Like, I would love to know that question. Um, so the first chapter, resistance to adoption, uh, that was actually going to be chapter six. For some reason I had it, I thought chat, it was going to be good, but I, I ended up, the, like the week before I went to publish, I switched it to chapter one because I wanted people to see, um, I don't talk about Bitcoin in the first chapter a whole lot. I touch on it, but what I really say is, hey, here's other technologies that have been adopted, um, electricity, automobiles, the printing press, um, you know, different things, Netflix from Blockbuster, those types of things. Look at the different types of resistance, those paradigm shifting things that have changed our world, like our the internet, 
we would not be talking right now without the internet. Um, there was a time when you could either say I'm an internet user. And then there was another set of people that were not internet users. There's nobody on the face of the planet, or at least in the United States, in the developed world that, that isn't an internet user. Everybody is an internet user now because that paradigm completely shifted. And so it's easy to think that like, oh yeah, all the people that were adopting the internet in the early days, they just had it easy. Um, like, look at the internet's huge. Everybody knew it was going to be huge and everybody bet on the internet. No, the internet faced a ton of resistance. There was people that were just skeptical about it, that were, you know, harmless, but skeptical. There were people that had financial interests, like newspapers didn't want people to, you know, go to the internet for their news because they wanted you to pay for the hard copy, you know, or, or things like, you know, the music industry was, was resistant to it. And there's all sorts of stories about resistance, um, electricity. Every room we walk into nowadays is electrified. You don't think about adopting electricity anymore because it's just par for the course. But there was a time when you had to pay an extravagant, extravagant amount of money just to have an electrified house or an electrified yeah. room. And the other thing too, like we were talking about altcoins earlier and some of the traps and the, the, the trappings that happen with early technologies, altcoins and some of these projects that are extracting wealth out of people um, though they had equivalents in old technologies, for example, with electricity, one of the, the things that I cited was a patent. So there was things that were positive, like the incandescent light bulb that changed the world. Like all of a sudden we had electric light and people could, you know, walk around at night because we had this new invention, but then there was other inventions that were very, very dangerous. And people use those dangerous inventions to talk poorly about electricity. And so the patent that I read out in the book is for something called uh, the vapor bath. All it was, was a therapeutic bath that was electrified. So you would sit in a body of water and there would be electric currents. Well, guess what? People got electrocuted to death because this was a very, very dangerous invention. And so I, I make that connection to, yeah, there's there's things in the crypto space that are very, very dangerous for people. Um, and that gets used against Bitcoin, right? That gets used against real, true adoption of sound money. And so, but don't be disheartened. Those things are par for the course. So when you see negative headlines about Bitcoin, rejoice. It means that people are paying attention. Like, um, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I used to watch WWE all the time, love WWE. And I remember, and I still like watch, I don't watch the actual show anymore. I think it's cool. Um, I like watching documentaries about the WWE. And when you hear the, uh, the WWE, like superstars talk about is they say the worst thing that can happen when you walk out is for people to be silent. You want them to either cheer or to boo. Like either one of those is fine. That means you're a superstar if they're cheering or booing. And that's the same thing with Bitcoin. Negative headlines are not the worst thing in the world for Bitcoin. Yes, it's things we need to work through, but every major technology that has been paradigm shifting had negative headlines. It had things that were dangerous about it. And then developers and smart people, uh, they made the fixes for it. And then there was people like you and I that were the marketing side of it that were out there telling people about it. Like, no, like electricity has made has raised the standard of living for people all around the world has made the quality of life better. Um, and so, but it faced tremendous resistance. So I think that's the first thing I think if people can get before they even get into Bitcoin, like deep before they even get into the tenants of Bitcoin, and all that kind of stuff, they can understand that it's, it's murky, it's messy. There's going to be some discomfort in it. The market, like you said earlier, the market can go up and it can go down. There can be, there's gonna be good times and bad times. 
don't be disheartened. You have the truth on your side. The truth wins in the long term. The truth doesn't always have a good short term run. But over the long arc, the truth just has always won. A hundred percent. Can't even say you said anything wrong there, Brian. And you know what's crazy is that uh, I'm actually reading a book right now called The Age of Edison. And I don't mm. know if you've heard of the book, but it's no. essentially it's, it's called The Age of Edison. And it's pretty much talking about Edison, obviously, and his invention with the light bulb and kind mm. of bringing um, I don't want to use the word artificial light, but the light that we use now to America and how it changed not only American culture, but it changed the people of America. It made them more productive. It made the streets more safer. You had street lights. You had, you know, a lot of big changes just through electricity and the light bulb. And like you said, Bitcoin is very similar where in those times you had Tesla, you had Edison, you had people kind of competing to be number one or to com competing to have that patent to say, I invented this. And with Bitcoin, what makes it so unique is that the mysterious, you know, creators, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, if it's one person, multiple people, we don't know, they kind of invented this thing and then they let it run its course. They didn't say, I'm the leader of Bitcoin or I'm the CEO of Bitcoin. And that's what makes it so beautiful because that removes corruption. Because as we know, our leaders, CEOs, people with large amounts of power can be corrupted. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin just made sense to me. I'm like, oh, there's no leader. There's no one yeah. to kind of manipulate this or capitulate it. That in itself means that it has to just rely solely on that algorithm. It has to rely on the protocol that was set forth and kind of ushered into the world. And when people really realize that, they're wondering like, okay, we're taking money out of the hands of man and we're putting it into an algorithm or something that has a consistent finite schedule that no one can alter or edit. And that's like, that makes sense. That removes all the banking and the bailouts and the corruption and the, you know, stock changes and all the goofy stuff that we see going on in our economy. And it's like, people just have to get on board. And this book that you've written, Bitcoin Evangelism is one of those pieces to kind of finding your truth. Mm -hmm. So once again, Brian, I'll tell you, thank you for writing this book. Mm -hmm. Thank you for continuing to push it out to the world because it's very important and it's needed. Well, thank you, brother. I really appreciate that. And uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the things you said right there, I think that uh, some of the pushback I get, not from altcoiners, but more from, from no-coiners, people that are new to the community, is you said, you know, kind of putting our trust in an algorithm. And they'll say things like, well, I don't want to put all my money or even some of my money trusting in an algorithm. That makes me feel uncomfortable. And my response to that, I love when they say that because I said, you put your trust in algorithms every single day. One of the examples I used in the book, you probably read it, was, was, that's what stoplights are. Stoplights and intersections are algorithmic. So when you go through a an intersection and north and southbound traffic have a green light, there's an algorithm that tells east and westbound to, to that they have a red light. They have to stop. When you go through an intersection at 45 miles an hour, like you're trusting with your entire life, not your money, like your entire life, your family's life. You're trusting in that algorithm. And guess what? You've never even thought about it. Like you've never worried that like that the lights aren't you know correct because it's trustless. Algorithms just function. If A equals B and B equals C, it just works. It's mathematic. It's pure. You know, Steve Wozniak said that Bitcoin's pure mathematics. It's beautiful. People that understand math um, on this really deep level, they see absolute beauty in Bitcoin because it's perfect. Like I would much like for some reason, you know, saying that I don't trust in algorithms would be like, oh, I'd rather have a, a police officer with a little baton thing in the middle of the intersection guiding traffic. That guy's way more likely to mess up than an algorithmic intersection. But what we have right now with our financial system, the Federal Reserve, is we have 
fed chair pal is like the, the, the you know, officer in the middle of the street waving people around. Well, he might make people collide sometimes because he's a human and he can, he can mess up. I mean, he might be corrupt or he might just mess up. Either way, there's a lot of room for error. So let's go to mathematical purity. And uh, when you start to talk to people like that, it's like, yeah, you know what? Actually, that does sound like a better system. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 so fun helping people along that journey. And that's why it's so fun. I mean, you've got the pleasure to 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 put Bitcoin content out there with your podcast and with the books. And, uh, you know, being able to just illuminate that for people, is it's really, really rewarding. Um, and so yeah, man, I think we're on the right path here. Most definitely. And that's that's what I do it for. You know, writing has always been my passion, my wheelhouse, and I'll continue to do it. And I just happen to be good at, you know, creating content as well. But uh, Brian, this Bitcoin conversation was awesome. I really look forward to seeing you again at some point. Could you give the world, the audience, your social media handles, um, places that they can find your book? Because people need to definitely read that. And um, anything else, any future endeavors that you might have, you want people to know about? Well, thank you so much again. Um, yeah, so my uh, I'm, I'm really responsive on social media. So feel free to read out on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, it's at Brian.Dement, D-E-M-I-N-T. On, in, uh, on Twitter, it's at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, the T-H-E, Mint, M-I-N-T. Um, I do SAT giveaways. I love using my Lightning Wallet. <laughs> like, it's just so fun. I have I have followers from all over the world, ton of uh, Salvadorians, ton of Argentinians, U.S., all over the world. It's so cool to send micro payments to people, five cent, 20 cent payments. We don't think of them in cents, but you know, we think of them in sats, but it's so cool to send that value all around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you like messing around with the lightning wallet and winning some free sats, then, you know, come on over, shoot me a DM. Let me know you uh, saw the interview on Bitcoin source. I'll send you a thousand sats just for fun. Um, and uh, yeah, so the book is on Amazon. It's been an Amazon bestseller in the economic inflation category. It's been as high as number seven in the world. Somehow it's crazy. Like some of the books that I quote in my book, it's like somehow higher than those books. So that's been like super flattering to be a part of something that's such a real conversation right now. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. The The book had a, uh, a 3.1 million sat wallet hidden in the book. Somebody just found it. So I, I hid 12 words throughout the book. We just, it, it took somebody about three months to find it. I'm actually, anybody that bought a copy of the book though, I'm retroactively programming a wallet back into it. So I'm gonna put another 1 million sat wallet in the book. So anybody that already has the book or if you're gonna buy a new copy of the book, keep an eye out on Twitter. I'm gonna give some hints for how you can find this wallet. It's like a little uh, treasure hunt in the book for a 1 million sat wallet. Perfect, Brian, that's super cool and innovative. And I think that that's really gonna draw a lot of people um, and, you know, once again, Brian, thank you for taking time to be on the Bitcoin source. People out there, grab the book Bitcoin Evangelism. It's a must read. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Oh, 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 o